With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good evening and welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner. I am here with Deb and we are just grateful that we are both here tonight, aren't we? Yes, we are. We made it finally. Yeah. Between uh, problems and computer problems and blizzards. <laughs> yep. Yes, uh, I'm on the mountains of Montana, and uh, Deb's in Virginia. She's got more snow than I do. Yes, yes. We had um, probably about eight inches last night, and now it's really cold and windy. But, um, yeah, well, yeah, it's a nor'easter. But you're nice and warm and toasty with your wood stove. Yes. And you have electricity. The electricity didn't go out. I'm surprised. I am too. But sh- oh, and and if 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 suddenly um, our listeners lose us, um, it's because my internet went out. But I will get right back on. Don't worry about it. <laughs> we will be right back. Right. Well, and I can talk as well because I'm I'm linked in on the phone. Right. Rich. So yes. All right. As long as I don't lose. My uh, my internet will be good. Sounds good. All right. Well, this evening we are going to be talking about a loyalist. We talked about a loyalist women um, that followed their their British husbands to America last time, and now we're going to talk about a wife of a British general, very famous British general. Now we couldn't again. There's not much on her, and she did stay in England. But we will paint you a picture of her life, uh, life of people that were in her station, because uh, we didn't have countesses here in the United States of America or in the colonies. They had them, all the royalty was back in Britain. So she was a countess because she was an earl, and we'll get into all the, the machinations of what that entails as well. So there's... We're going to be, first, we're going to go to America. I'm going to talk about the types of theaters. We've done this many, many, many times, but I still I have to review it every time because General Cornwallis ended up on all of the theaters. He had, had engagements and battles on every theater. So the Northern Theater, we know, was the Massachusetts area. Middle Theater would be, what, New York and Maryland and Delaware, like that? Yeah. And, of course, the Southern Theater was, the well, Virginia was half middle um, was, you know, Georgia, uh, South Carolina, North Carolina. And he was engaged in battle in all of those theaters. But the most famous battle that uh, Cornwallis was in was in Yorktown because that was the surrender of the British to the American forces and the end of the war. And that we will focus on that as well because we haven't talked about the surrender. We've talked about the peace treaty. We talked about Franklin and the ambassadors and how they came about. We talked about the Dutch uh, financing them and also helping in the negotiations, but we haven't really said when, where, and how 
the battle, the war actually ended. So I'm going to start with, now I'm going to mess up her name again, so you're going to have to help me with it. Jemima. Jemima. Okay. Now, we, again, we have very little on her, but we'll make it work. We always do. Okay. So Jemima Tolkien's Jones was born in 1747. She was the daughter of Captain James Jones, and she married General Sir, the General Sir Charles Cornwallis, first Marquise Cornwallis, son of Charles Cornwallis, first Earl Cornwallis. So she married him, on, and this, this little ditty on her um, says when she died, but I'm going to get into that later. From she, she, her married name became Cornwallis uh, from July 14, 1768. So she became a countess because he was an earl. And he was in the parliament. We'll get into that as well. Now, do you have up or you need a couple minutes to get up? Because like I said, we're, we're going between a couple different computers and different sites. And do you, I'd like to highlight what a countess was in England. Okay. Yeah. Um, let me get to that. Because it was important to know that she stayed behind because she had certain duties that she had to attend to while her husband was fighting in a war. And this happened quite frequently in Britain because Britain was always fighting a war, always somewhere. And they would send out the um, the the, uh, what do you call it, the royalty as generals. You, don't, you didn't just become a general by going up through the ranks like we do here in America. You had to be, a, you had to be royalty to be a general. Okay, let's see. All right. Um, okay, where is it? All right. Let me do this. Okay, from the, well, hopefully they'll let me, um, read the whole darn thing because it just bothers me when they cut me off. Um, the, uh, the, the countess, count, countess, um, European title of nobility equivalent to a British earl ranking in modern times after a marquess or in countries without marquesses, a duke, which is, you know, the marquess was basically the French, you know, equivalent. The Roman Combs was originally a household companion of the emperor. While under the Franks, he was a local commander and judge. The counts were later slowly incorporated into the feudal structure, some becoming subordinate to dukes. So counts are under dukes, although a few counties, such as those of Flanders, Toulouse, and Barcelona, were as great as duchies. The reassertion of royal authority over the feudatories which took place at different times in the different kingdoms and led to the formation of centralized states of the modern type meant that most counts lost their political authority, though they retained their privileges as members of nobility. All right, now that is, that's what a count means, and a countess is the feminine uh, um, title. Now, Okay, let me see. Let me get into what they were doing here. Let me find my 
Okay. All right, you can come up now. Yes, there we go. It's a little slow. It's it's kind of cold up here in my office. <laughs> okay, let's see. This is from the uh, uh, com website, and this is all about the, the nobility. This is the third grade in Peerage. Don't you love it when ads just pop up, even though you have pop-up light, you know, Anyways, His Royal Highness the Earl of Wessex is a member of the royal family and should be as dressed as such, the Earl of Wessex. So basically, um, an earl is referred to as lord rather than the earl of. It should be noted that although most peers of this rank are earls of, somewhere there is a significant number that are not. The following titles are prefixed by earl, not earl of. So, you know, it. I don't know how they kept it all straight <laughs> when you get down to it. A number, oh, wait here. When an earl is also a privy counselor or has received a knighthood, has the appropriate post-nominal letters. Well, there you go. A number of earldoms can be inherited in the female line, and a countess in her own right would be addressed as for the wife of an earl, her husband derives no title or style from his wife. The wife of an earl is a countess, as is known as Lady Whomever. She would have been Lady Cornwallis. Use of the title countess in speech is socially incorrect unless it needs to be specifically mentioned, for example, in a formal introduction. In official documents, the style of the right honorable should should still be used for both Earl and Countess. So that's the, the etiquette. Oops, I just lost my page. Um, and let's see if I can get my little page back because... Uh, we I mean, this is, kind of, this is kind of important, too, because they still have... These titles still exist. Yes, they do. To this day. Yes. Yes. Um, oh, yes. So, hold on. Let me get to here. Here we go. I'm sorry. This is a little, a little slow. It is. Yeah, well, I'm surprised you have the Internet at all with all the stuff that's going on out there. <laughs> oh, dear. Because oh. you know people are going nuts trying to call, you know, get online with other people, send emails. and. Yeah. Okay, go down. All right, now, let's see. Where did I see it here? Okay. All right. What's that? Oh, those are the servants. My God, they had a lot of servants. Okay, so this is basically what um, a countess and earl would have in their in their household. Now, the female servants, you have the upper servants, and it would be a housekeeper. And she is her sole duty is to engage, manage, and dismiss the female servants, with the exceptions of lady's maid, nurse, and cook, whom the mistress engages. Um, 
I mean, it, it's amazing what they, they had. She supervises the china closet, the still room department, and superintends the arrangement of rooms for visitors and their servants. Her daily routine includes overlooks the still room, sees what china and linen is given out for breakfast, presides over the housekeeper's room breakfast, gives out the stores for the day, assists in washing china, makes rounds of the bedrooms, and replaces supplies such as candles, writing paper, and soap. Make sure the rooms are clean and in order. Presides over the servants' hall dinner. Arranges dessert for dinner. Makes tea in the afternoon and makes the coffee for dinner. She also makes preserves and bottles fruit. She keeps the household accounts and does most of the needlework. That's just one person. Okay, and then they have the lady's maid, and she attends to her mistress's appearances. She does her hair and assists in dressing. She packs and unpacks. She also may make her mistress dresses depending on, uh, you know, her skills. Um, in, in a typical day, she brings up hot water as necessary, brings up tea before breakfast, prepares clothes for dressing, assists the mistress in dressing, puts the room in order, puts out necessities for walking, riding, or driving, assists in taking off her outdoor attire, puts evening dress in order, assists in dressing her for dinner, sits up for her, assists in undressing her, puts away her jewels, keeps her wardrobe in repair and washes the lace and fine linen. She also attends to any pets the mistress may have. All right, now we get to the senior servants. There's the governess, taught the children, the nurse, and she's in charge of caring for the household's children from the time they are born until they over are turned over to the care of the governess. And she does all the, she did everything that a, a regular mom would do, she does for them. Under servants, you have the cook um, who, you know, orders and prepares and, you know, she gets the menu from the the uh, mistress and, I mean, she prepares the soup for, this is amazing. She prepares the soup for the following day, prepares the pastry, jellies, creams, and entrees for the day all in the morning. The afternoon is usually her free time unless there is a dinner party or guest. She then prepares dinner and once dinner is served, her duties are over for the day. It is also her duty to lock the doors and windows of the basement, to let the kitchen fire burn low, and to turn off the gas in the kitchen and passages before retiring, if there, you know, one gas was there. Um, so, you know, she she had to get up real early to get everything done for the day. And then you have the kitchen maid who assisted the cook, housemaid, um, you know, did the, the basic domestic things, making beds and tidying bedrooms and, you know, Scullery maid, her duty is to clean and scour the pots and pans as well as the cooking utensils. She just cleans all day. All day she cleans the kitchen. Now the male servant, you have the house who, uh, um, house steward. Uh, is a city, uh, uh, let's see, the household. And then there's land stewards. And um, they, they, uh, Basically, they're like the manager of the under servants. Then you have the valet, and that's the the uh, uh, the the man who you know takes care of his master's clothes and boots and carries up the water for his bath. Basically, that's the male version of a lady's maid. And you have the butler, and he is the head of his department and responsible for the poor performance of those under him, the footmen. And uh, he he's uh. He just makes sure everything is running smoothly, everything is clean, everything um, 
you know, and he's the only, I think he's the only one who has the key to the wine cellar because he takes care of the wine. So then you have the coachman and the head governor, gardener, governor, gardener. <laughs> and then you have the footman and then the groom who attends the horses and exercises them. So that's ba- your basic um, servant assemble, assemble, assemble. Your, your basic servants in a household of those in the nobility. And, of course, they could have, you know, like six footmen. They could have, um, you know, the, you know, the, the maids, the kitchen maids. They could have a few of those and a few household housemaids, depending on how large their, uh, their household was. But I just thought that was interesting to see the uh, what it took to run a house of nobility. And if you watch um, Downton Abbey, which of course is like, you know, 150 years later, but it, it was, that was at the end, the end of this type of nobility in England that um, where when that story was, it was at the turn of the 20th century. So uh, now let's see if we can find if I can find that other one here. Er. The countess had to manage all those people, though. Oh yeah, yeah. She had to. Um, well, basically, what it was was these these. Um, Usually, those who who took up uh, household service and you know, became servants of one kind or another, they started really young. I mean, they might start as the the scullery maid um, when they're like fourteen, right? And then move up, and and they were in domestic service usually for quite a while, and then they. You know, they got promoted if, if uh, you know, say the butler finally got old or got sick or something and they needed a new butler. They might go down to a valet who had been around or, or a footman who showed great promise. You know, as long as they, they usually when you were in domestic service, you stayed in domestic service. That's what you knew. Right. There weren't any college well, for it. But it was kind of like the... The journeymen and craftsmen, they used, they tended, their families tended to stay in that profession. Yeah. Oh, dear. But, I, I mean, it's, it's, uh, let's see. Oh, gosh, we're all, we're... So that's all you have on that? That's pretty much it. I mean, you figure she was the, the um, well, she entertained other nobility. And so right. she had to, um, she would have to know the social graces. Of course, that's what, you know, they were um, brought up, you know, in houses of nobility, you know, her, her uh, governess. And then if she, you know, they were an enlightened family and had a tutor also for the females as well as the males, um, they would learn 
how you know how to they would learn how to address uh, uh, other nobility they would learn how to appear before the the royalty they would know how to entertain they would know how to you know throw a state dinner you know it it's really um basically her her role from what i've been reading about you know these the aristocracy and nobility is she was her husband's greatest support her career was to make him look good basically and to do charitable stuff around her village or her county you know wherever they were um she had to make sure that nothing went wrong that um certain people weren't seated next to other certain people or that certain people should be seated next to certain people it was all to further her husband's um standing and her 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 also her thing was to give an heir you know the next in line uh to the you know the the fourth earl of you know Timbuktu um and and to make sure her children were taught the niceties and the you know everything that she had been taught because they were going to hold you know titles also and plus the fact that they had to find good marriages you know um uh, equivalent marriages if not better for their daughters and their sons so I mean, it's not like she didn't have enough to do. It's like basically running a small state. You know, I mean, this house, this house was an entity, and I I say house, and it probably had, you know, 35 bedrooms, um, if not more. Uh, But it was run like in a, you know, they called it an estate for a reason. It's like a mini state. And the countess and the counter earl presided, and then they'd have visitors coming in from other estates. So it was very political, very um, very social, and and in uh, I mean it was definitely class. Those who you know who worked under the main house and those who lived in the main house. So, and you did not leave your 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 uh your place. There were rules for everybody. Like a countess would not leave her place to insult a duchess or the queen or the king. You see, I mean even the nobility had their Place. Right. So that's I just found that extremely interesting. I mean, well, that's why she didn't follow him to in uh, to the in the, the war. Right. That's why they stayed behind. She had to, you know, she had to keep up appearances. Mm-hmm. She had to manage the house because she, you know, anticipated he was going to be coming back, and actually he didn't. When I read in his essay more, yeah, she had children and. Um, and she was like the regent for the estate. 
making sure everything went very nicely. Right. Okay, so I am going to get into a little bit about uh, Charles Earl Corn Wallace, and then we're going to go into some opinions of the Parliament about the war. So, okay, um, let's see. The man who one day, this is from, oh, I can't read it because my computer is all messed up. Hold on, let me look back here. Um, where did you go? I got rid of you. <laughs> uh, hold on a minute. Let me see. I, and I wanted this up too, and then I got sidetracked. All right. This is his.jrshelby.com. The man who would one day be accused of losing America was born on New Year's Eve, 1738, the eldest of a titled and highly respectable family. The Cornwallis tribe had established itself in Suffolk, which occupies the easternmost knob of the British Isles. Though not fabulously wealthy, they had the kind of connections through blood and marriage that meant everything in British society. Young Charles's grandfather was awarded a baronetcy for faithful service to King Charles II. His father, also named Charles, was the first Earl Cornwallis. His uncle served as Archbishop of Canterbury, which was a big deal, by the way. Hmm. His mother was a daughter of Lord Townshend and a niece of Robert Walpole, one of England's great prime ministers. None of this means much more. His formal education, ah, his formal education took place at Eton Academy, which marked him for life, not least by the blow from a hockey stick that pitched his left eye at a permanent tilt. Eton was a rough place in those days. Underclassmen were routinely beat up by seniors, and the law of the jungle ruled. Nevertheless, Cornwallis retained fond memories of his school years all his life and credited Eaton with shaping much of his character. Since he was tall and physically strong, we can presume he learned to look after himself. Most young men in his privileged position went on to Oxford, thence to a life of leisure and general uselessness. But Cornwallis possessed a strong sense of duty from early age, which probably figured in his choosing the military as a career. After purchasing an ensign's commission in 1756, he took another unusual step and studied for the job. Since England had no military academies at the time, he attended Turin, a highly respected school in northern Italy. Only a few months after his enrollment, however, the Seven Years' War broke out in Europe, and it was time to close the book and take to the field. This particular conflict had begun in the distant wilderness of western Pennsylvania, where French soldiers had set up a fort in defiance of English borders. A young provincial officer named George Washington had been sent to discourage them. His failure to do so ignited the French and Indian War, which spread to disputed territory in Canada and India and eventually evolved much of Europe. We don't really understand. This is what I say about this all the time. Most of these wars, because, these, they, because there were colonies all over the world, 
that French had, that Spain had, that England had. It, it, it all evolved into a world war. No one, and everyone's, I know people are getting it now that the Revolutionary War was a civil war, but Deb and I have pointed out over and over again, it also was a world war. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you know, the people that George Washington and his um, lieutenants and colonels and all that, that fought on the side of the Patriots, they were once on the side of the British. So now they're fighting these men that they were fighting with, right? I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah, yeah. Twelve years later, now they're, they're their enemy. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? If we don't watch ourselves, the same thing is going to happen with us. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, the ins and outs of the Seven Years Award need not concern us. It's sufficient to understand that Britain came out on top and young Cornwallis distinguished himself first as a staff officer and then as a lieutenant colonel of the 12th foot, gallantly leading his troops into combat. We talked about the the foot um, soldiers before. In 1762, his father died and passed the entire estate on to his oldest son, now the second Earl of Cornwallis. Duty demanded that young Charles return home, set the estate in order, and take his father's seat in the House of Lords. While going about all of this necessary business, he also found time to fall deeply in love. The lady of his choice, the daughter of an army colonel, could bring neither title nor fortune to the marriage, but Cornwallis had enough for both of them. He loved Jemima, Joan, and that was that. (laughs) After their marriage in 1768, the couple retired to Brougham Hall, the ancestral estate in Suffolk, to enjoy the countryside and start a family of their own. So this is another, believe it or not, love story because usually, and we've talked about this uh, often as well as in the col- as in England and the colonies, everybody pretty much knew everyone, and you would like marry into a friend's family, right? Yeah. In fact, um, marriages up into this time, and for the most part, for the next oh seventy five, if not longer, in some households, uh, years, the um, the marriages between children of uh, families was a business deal. You might, you know, if you, if you were, you know, say they had four daughters, they had to find suitable husbands for their daughters. Now, depending on how much their daughters had in their dowry, really focused in on which family they would look to to marry their daughter into to give her a good life. And same with the son. Um, like if, if Charles is, say, he, his brother, who would not have been, you know, he, he, he would have been nothing because Charles was the second Earl of Cornwallis. The second son was not to inherit. He did not inherit the title unless Charles died. Um, so he had to really look for a marriage that would give him a good living and a position in society. So it's really a business deal, a lot, at, at a lot of these, these marriages at this time. This was, um, you, this was like the exception to the rule. All the, you know, the, the marriages of love, um, that a lot of times wasn't always, you know, it wasn't the case. So that was nice. 
that he could do that. Plus, I think he would, he, you know, from what I've read about Cornwallis, I can't see him marrying for business. Uh, he was just not that kind of man. Well, it seems that, you know, he had um, a good upbringing. He was faithful, yeah. and as we'll read on, because he's he's going to disagree, and then we're, we're going to get into that, though. But um, <laughs> just showing that he, he did marry for love, he was faithful. Mm-hmm. You know, and he probably was a Christian, which they're not going to say. You know, they all were Christians back then. Okay, so let's see. Um, but complete isolation was not possible for a man in Cornwallis's position, and he was continually shuttling back and forth to London for parliamentary sessions and audiences with the king. George III developed a fondness for the earl. They were similar in character and temperament, even though their views regarding American policy were opposed. Cornwallis consistently voted against harsh measures towards the colonies, such as the Stamp Act, even when only a handful of his peers joined him. Okay, so he doesn't believe what they're doing to the colonists is just, because while we were talking about him, he was a very fair and just man, and he believes in, just, in, in you know, the rule of... I can tell he could believe in the rule of law. And he also fought in the colonies with, um, against the French with George Washington and the colonists. So he came to admire them. He was there for seven years. Um, so he had more of an experience with, him, with America than his, the other people in Parliament, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, it, during that, this time, he, he was in America for quite a while, and then he went to, you know, he came back home after the war, and so those next, uh, you know, 68, he married Jemima, and he was already back um, in, in, you know, taking his father's seat, so he he was listening to, you know, the parliamentary uh, uh, the acts that were being foisted upon the colonists, and, you know, he knew what and and since he knew King Charles and um you know they they had a a relationship you know as much as you can have a relationship with a king um and he he you know he knew how King George III viewed the colonies and he also but King George never been there <laughs> you know King George never been there and and he had so, you know, it's, it, and that was a lot, you know, the parliament, most of the people in the parliament, the, 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 uh, in the house and all, you know, everything that, all the, the different parliamentary positions, these people, a lot of them had never been to America. And they, they looked down upon the Americans because they were just colonists. And they had no representation in Parliament. Well, and that that makes this all very unique because you got to know he's coming back and he's telling Gemma all this, Jemima all this. Yes. Um, and wanting to get her opinion because he loved her. It was like you said, it wasn't a business arrangement with them. See, in the colonies, and we've discussed this many times when we talk about, um, especially the. Uh, Continental Congress and the generals and all that. They 
here in America, a woman's opinion was very much cherished by these men, these learned men. And even if you go out to the frontier, the women were the ones who talked about a couple of these women, like Nancy Hart. They were the ones who protected their places, you know? And for him to, again, I'm bringing up Mary for love, meant he had to respect her as well. Yes. And that's not how it was in Europe between the, the men and the women. I mean, it just wasn't that way. It was more so here in the United States because we were freer and we had more worries than, they, than, than let's say, a, a, a royal in, the, uh, in England. Yeah, there were, uh, there were very few titled women who took an interest in politics. There were those who did. Uh, they were the exception to the rule, too. Uh, mostly the the mindset of, of the time was um, you, you uh, if you were a woman, you let the men do the thinking and the talking. You might have a journal full of opinions on it. And I tried to find some, you know, on, on the Internet. Um, I know there's books out there on some of these women, but... Um, it's really hard to come across the opinions of the titled women at this time because it was the men who 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 were basically published um, in in the newspapers and and they were the ones who were in you know there weren't any women in politics then, um, which is funny because you think that you know Queen Elizabeth I there. She could have. <laughs> she was something else, but uh, as was Queen Elizabeth II. But you know, it, it, it was the society of the times, and and the women had their place, and the men had their place, and they were two different places. But there were the one way that the the uh, titled women um, got around it was they had salons, you know, like once a week. Thursday night was Lady So-and-So's salon, and all the best of the best would come, and everybody would talk about what was going on, even the women. And the women who, it, it was a little jarring to a lot of the gentlemen that these women had opinions, um, because they were supposed to be pretty and, you know, delightful and all that. Um but they were respected. Uh, you know, that's one thing that uh, Benjamin Franklin found. The women that he took on as friends, good friends, um, and maybe a little more, who knows. Um, I don't think he was as randy because flirting was, was a way of life at that time. You flirted. So when we think about, you know, him you know, the gentlemen of the day going out and, oh, they have these wonderful letters that they've written to these other women who are married. It's just the way it was. It doesn't mean that they went to bed with each other, though I'm sure some did. But it, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't the norm for women to be publicly political. You know, but women are good at this thing. So, you know, the the, the women who were you know, a little more out there and very well educated and, and intelligent and just, you know, very, you know, people, people, 
would have these salons and they would invite these people over and everybody was, you know, feeling honored to be able to go to so-and-so's salon. And then it would be a night of, of discussing all sorts of things from politics to gossip and drinking very nice wine. And um, what was that thing that Benjamin Franklin liked? Uh, oh, it was big at that time. Um, oh, I can't think what it is now. But that was very, very popular at the time. Uh, oh, I can't think of what it is. But anyways, you know, they they just stand around and be entertained and drink and talk. And that's how women got around it. Without dirtying their reputation. Okay, do you have some opinions of some people or an overview of uh, Parliament? Well, yeah, I have Edmund Burke. Now, he was um, like the main, uh, he was like the main friend of America. Um, And and if if you want to understand the, uh, you know, more deeply about the American Revolution and government and, the Constitution and all that, you'll read Edmund Burke. He's, um, he, he, was, uh, he was an intelligent person, and a lot of people respected his, his uh, you know, whenever he speechified. So anyways, um, this is from uh, almostchosenpeople.wordpress.com, a blog about American history and the development of a great nation. And uh, it says, in some quarters, Edmund Burke is counted as a supporter of the Americans during the Revolutionary War. He certainly was a friend of America, and he opposed many of the policies of the British government that he thought were driving the colonists to rebellion. But Burke did not necessarily support the colonists' drive to free themselves from British rule. See, here was the sticky wicket, as they say, and I, I have no idea what that means, but I'm sure an Englishman could tell me. Uh the thing is, is they didn't like what the king was doing, but they weren't really feeling too good about the colonists going, enough of you, be gone, we'll be independent. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, they were conflicted uh, in their, in, it's, it's so many of them, I mean, they were the ones who, who, um, you know, like uh, Grenville and Ward North, and uh, who was the prime minister at the time. Um, they they were all for doing the the king's bidding, of course. Um, and they they felt that the colonists were you know were being very unappreciative, and and you know how dare you think of, I mean. Okay, so you don't agree with it, but how dare you go against the king? And that's why it became treasonous to do what our our, uh, patriots did. Um, It says, precisely because he felt a deep fraternal bond with the Americans, Burke hoped that the colonists would think twice before commencing what would be a bloody and unfortunate war. Burke was an early critic of the policies that angered the American colonists, In 1769, he published a pamphlet that blames the British government for creating policies that stirred the conflict. He notes that taxes 
for raising revenue that had not been levied under colonists, and they had grown accustomed to this state of affairs. When the government decided to tax the colonists, this let loose an angry torment. He says, By this measure we let loose that dangerous spirit of disquisition, not in the coolness of philosophic inquiry, but inflamed with all the passions of a haughty, resentful people who thought themselves deeply injured, and they were contending for everything that was valuable in the world. Unquote. The government's inability to acknowledge that they had done anything to stir up resentment only made matters worse. Quote, they took no step to divert the dangerous spirit which had began even then to appear in the colonies, to compromise with it, to mollify it, or to subdue it. Unquote. In a speech on American taxation in 74, Burke continues to harangue his colleagues for refusing to moderate their policies. He says, again and again, revert to your old principles, seek peace and ensure it, leave America. If she has taxable matter in her to tax herself, I am not here going into the distinctions of rights nor attempting to mark their boundaries. I do not enter into these metaphysical distinctions. I hate the very sound of them. Leave the Americans as they anciently stood, and these distinctions born of our unhappy context will die along with it. This points to Burke's pragmatic approach to politics. He was not concerned with metaphysical abstractions. God, I wish our politicians would get over that. This is a point he comes back to in speech on conciliation with the colonies linked uh, to my previous post. He, he states, the question with me is not whether you have a right to render your people miserable, but whether it is not your interest to make them happy. It is not what a lawyer tells me I may do, but what humanity, reason, and justice tell me I ought to do. Is it a politic act the worse for being a generous one? Is no concession proper but that which is made from your want of right to keep what you grant? God, I just love him. <laughs> I just so enjoy reading his words. Separate, uh, separate posts can be made on this one segment of the speech, especially as it relates to Burke's overall philosophy. But this, is, this does get to the heart of his disagreement with the home country's policy. It suddenly doesn't work, and he only arranges, enrages the people that it has been foisted upon. Burke lays down other pragmatic criticisms of British philosophy at other points in this speech. He objects to the idea of subduing the colonists by force, pointing out that it would be but a temporary solution that does address the underlying issue. He also frets that the use of force, if it fails, would mean that there would be irreconcilable rupture between the home government and the colonists. But he also fears that the use of force would impair the object that the government is trying to preserve. And ultimately, Burke thinks that the solution is to give the Americans representation in the Constitution. This is not quite the same as giving the American representation in Parliament, and Burke stops short of fully supporting that idea, but he wants to give the colonists a greater sense of belonging to the British polity through some kind of constitutional mechanism. And he, he continued on throughout, you know, the the following years, um, you know, to to try to get, you know, the Parliament and the King to understand that, you know, they agree that their rights have been violated. 
And then, um, but he also urged the colonists to consider the drawbacks to independence. He appeals to their sense of patriotism, arguing that their very liberties stem from their English heritage and that they are not likely to retain those rights and privileges independent of the motherland. And uh, though he underestimates America's ability to thrive in a state of independence, it is telling that he remains so concerned about their well-being. And that's basically, you know, what the the, uh, the parliamentarians um, that were, you say, friends of America and thought that they had been done wrong. This was their conundrum because, you know, the colonists going against the king, and if they agreed with it, then they were going against the king. And that was the big thing with the loyalists also in our country. I mean, you know, over in Britain, it's like, how dare you go against your king? I mean, it's, it was unheard of. You, you just didn't do that, you know. <laughs> He's your father. He takes care of you. And we as the parliament make sure it happens, you know. Uh, so that was the big conundrum within um, the, the members of parliament and, and the, the nobility uh, where how can you go against your king? I can see, I can understand you're being upset. And then there were the, the, I mean, most of the, the, a lot of the parliamentarians, you know, didn't agree with the king's um, choices there. But he was their king. But the ones that, I mean, then there were the ones that who, who really, you know, were indignant that the Americans, look what we've done. We've protected you all these years. We've never interfered in anything, you know. And and that's when Patrick Henry got up and said, yeah, and we bled for you, you know, meaning the Seven Years' War and, and any time that they had been called up, you know, to serve with the British uh, Army. He goes, yeah, we bled for you. You know, so, you know. Here, here's your protection. I'll raise you bleeding, and and I love that. I love Patrick Henry too. So, you know, there, and that's when Ben Franklin was in in England, and he was, you know, uh, he was the, uh, oh, what was he? Well, he was the postmaster, the royal postmaster, and then he was the, uh, he had to go to England um, and be like, what was it? The uh, what was the word for it? What was his his title? Where he 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 was the oh the um well he 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 was kind of like the agent for the colonists from Pennsylvania. So he was over in England, and he was you know he was like the inter inter intermediary. Between his you know his colonies colonists and and England, and so he found out the people who supported, but he came up against the Great Wall of this is your king. So that's you know it it, it was uh, it was a difficult time 
you know, for for some of these people, you know, these very thoughtful, uh, patriotic um, people in in government, because you know, here the king the king wants this done. The colonists are upset. We can understand why the colonists are upset, but the king wants this done. And there were those who took to their pen and, and spoke, as Burke did, and, and Penn and uh, a few others that, you know, said, but this is not just, sir. You know, and, he, and then they, well, how can we, how can we do this? All the while, the, the continent, or the, con, con, uh, the Congress, um, the Provincial Congress, back in the colonies were sending petitions to the king going, you know, we really don't like this, but you are our king, and we really don't want to have to have, we really don't want this to go to a terrible situation, you know, so please, if you would consider, sir, your royal highness, uh, you know, to take the, you know, the yoke off our shoulders of taxation. So both sides of the pond were conflicted about this whole situation for many years. Some never gave it up. Hmm. Okay, so when shooting started at Lexington, however, there was no question where Cornwallis stood. In 1776, he accepted a general's commission and volunteered for service in America. His first duty was not a good omen. He participated in the first British attempt to capture Charleston, an operation that was botched from the beginning and ended in a miserable failure. But the outlook brightened for His Majesty's troops when they sailed to New York and took part in the extensive operations there under the command of Sir William Howe. At the Battle of Long Island, General Cornwallis helped outflank the Americans and forced them from New York. A few months later, he was outfoxed by General Washington, who slipped away after Cornwallis thought he was successfully trapped on the Delaware. Washington then circled around and pounced upon the British rear guard at Princeton. But the Earl retrieved his reputation at the battles of Brandywine in the fall of 1777 and Mammoth in the summer of 1778. Mammoth brought the war to an effective end in the northern colonies, and Cornwallis had proved himself to be an energetic and fearless field commander. With a reputation, quick movement was very unusual for with a reputation of a quick movement, which was very unusual for a British general. They wrote this this, this, this sentence. Terrible. Yeah, there's missing a few words. <laughs> yeah. No one, least of all Cornwallis, knew what he could do with complete control of an operation. The indications are that he was eager to try. A number of changes in 1778 led his opportunity. First, Sir William Howe resigned his position as commander-in-chief. Yay. He had never liked he had never liked the American War, and he believed the king was not supporting him. Actually, they kicked him out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he resigned because they were going to kick him out. He was going to kick him them out. Really tired of him just sitting on his butt, you know. <laughs> well, that's uh, well, I could get into that. That's what these uh, 
Obama appointee people that are still in there. They're either, that's why they left because they knew you, you, they're going to get kicked out, so they're going to resign instead yes. of getting fired. Yeah. So George Clinton was named to take his place. Cornwallis had served under Clinton at Charleston and, New, and in New York, and the two men got along well. A happy situation which was soon to change. Cornwallis returned to England on leave, only to find his wife, Jemima, gravely ill. This distracted him from military affairs for several weeks, but when she died early in 1779, he found that life held little else for him. So, okay. That, I'm sorry. I was just going to say I have that book that describes um, when he left for America. Okay. So let me just say that she was buried at Church of St. Mary the Virgin, Culford Park, Bury Street, Edmondson, Suffolk in England. So that's where she was buried. And, yeah, I do want you to get into that. Yeah. Oops, wait a minute. Let me find the page. Okay. Oops, I've gone too far. Ah, uh, yes, he was the subject of following. Um, I mean, he, and he did take heat from uh, his his going against um, all the the uh, bills, you know, like the Massachusetts bill, the Boston Port bill, et cetera. Um, you know, so he he did take some heat for that. Um, and that so he comes to let's see the way okay. Um, all right, Lord Con yeah, Lord Cornwallis was uh let's see. Um, yeah, he was present in the House of Lords as frequently as in former years, so his absence from London on account of regimental duties interfered with a regular attendance in a parliament. But it is equally difficult to understand why he was allowed to retain office when all his votes on American questions were adverse to the well-known wishes of the king. Not only did he hold a civil office of considerable emolument, but in December 1770, he was made constable of the Tower, a military appointment which at that time neither his rank in the army or his services in the field gave him any strong claim. When the war with America broke out, Lord Cornwallis was ordered to take the command of one division of the British Army, and notwithstanding his opinions of the injustice of that war, he considered that as a military man he could not decline any employment offered to him. One great man took a different line when Lord Pitt returned in 76 from Canada, where he had been aide-de-camp to Sir Guy Carleton. Lord Chatham compelled him to resign his commission, an example which was followed by a few others, and he did not permit him to re-enter the army till 78 when France had declared war against England. The same sense of duty which made Lord Cornwallis disregard his own political views overcame his reluctance to quit his family, and he embarked February 10, 1776, for America with the, loyal, the local rank of lieutenant general. It was rumored at the time that the Lady Cornwallis, who was strongly averse to his going on active service, prevailed upon his uncle, the Archbishop of Canterbury, to request the king to allow Lord Cornwallis to relinquish his appointment, but that the latter, though the leave was given, peremptorily declined to avail himself of the permission. He returned to England in January 1778, but sailed again from St. Helens in the Trident on the 21st of April following. Lord Cornwallis and her children accompanying him to Portsmouth, and after his departure, I 
Yes. She returned to Colford, where she resumed the solitary life she had led since his first departure. But grief so preyed upon her health as to bring on a kind of jaundice, of which she eventually died, February 14, 1779. When Lord Cornwallis heard of her dangerous state, he threw up his command and again came to England, where he arrived a few weeks before her death. Lady Cornwallis always declared to her confidential attendant that she was dying of a broken heart, and she requested that a thorn tree should be planted above the vault where she was buried, as nearly as possible over her heart, significant of the sorrow which destroyed her life. She also directed that no stone should be engraved to her memory, and both wishes were complied with. And then it goes on. The death of his wife changed Lord Cornwallis's intention of remaining at home, and he shortly afterwards again offered his services, which, being accepted, he returned to America, and there remained until he was taken prisoner at Yorktown. Now, it says about her vault, the niche in the vault in which her remains were placed were closed by a plain slab of marble, not even bearing the name, which was, however, added in 1851, shortly after the funeral of the late Marchioness Cornwallis, who was also buried at Colford, though the estate had passed out of the possession of the family on the death of that last Marquis in 1823. The thorn tree was necessarily removed in March 1855 in consequence of alterations to the church. It was carefully replanted in the churchyard, but did not live more than three years afterwards. Aww. Let's see. Wow, that's kind of tragic. I know. I know. But you know what? He wasn't there. Yeah. You know, we talk about these love stories all the time um, when we do this history lesson. And um, she probably did, you know, got, you know, they get ill from certain things. But, you know, you figure somebody who's royalty is not, you know, unless they have a, a uh, hereditary disease is not going to suffer, you know, from sickness as much as a, a common person. Right. Well, we don't know what she died of. No. No, this was this was a book, um, it's, uh, The Correspondence of Charles, First Marquis of Cornwallis, uh, First Marquis of Cornwallis. Um, and you can find it over on the Google Books on Play, Google Play, which is where I found it, and it's, it's about his life, but that that was the best um, insight in her feelings of his, go, you know, going to the, the uh, colonies during the war. Right, because she... Um she knew he would be gone for a very long time, and she also knew that he had to be faithful to the king. Right. So, I mean, that's a really hard thing, like you were saying, because it's my king. What am I going to do, tell my husband he can't do this? Yeah. Yeah, well, that was the thing. He, and, it, you know, he, it showed he was a man of duty. He was in the British, you know, he was in the British Army, and he had his duty to his king. Even though he didn't agree with a lot of uh, um, 
you know, the king's position. Right. So it's a really interesting book. Um, it, it, uh, it, it shows a lot about, you know, we read about the generals that we, you know, on our side, as they say, the patriot generals. Um, but, you know, at the time, we still have to remember that the colonists were British subjects until they declared independence. Okay, so now he his wife died, and I'm glad you found that because now we had a more of an insight into her. Mm. Um, she seems like she was a very modest woman, even though for her, for her position, but she didn't want a big hoopla. Yeah, and uh, I imagine she was a very great lady. Um, you know, her upbringing uh, made her a great. Um, partner to him. Never mind that they loved each other and she missed her husband. Yep. So do you have a little bit on Yorktown? Because that's what we're going to be going next to the Battle of Yorktown and the surrender of Cornwallis. But I want to, I want to tell the folks where this is, why it was so significant. Um, I know that you said you were going to look it up. York what? Yorktown. Yes, I do. I'm looking for it here. Yorktown. Yes. Okay, Yorktown. Battle of Yorktown. And this is from um, Bot. Com- no, 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 no. I wanted the history of Yorktown. Oh. I have the Battle of Yorktown. Oh. I have that. Oh, yes, you have that. Okay. All right. Okay. You know, before we go on to that, uh, Deb, um, you had wanted to talk about the uh, Georgian ladies because this is where Jemima would be on this timeline in England. Yes. This you is, want to get into that uh, first and then... Uh, yeah. Yeah, this is... Um, um, Let's see. Let me get it up here. Okay. I know. I kind of waylaid you. (laughs) Yeah. But I have both now, so we're good. Okay. Still have internet. We're good. (laughs) Oh, the wind's howling outside, and it's very stormy. Okay. Now, this is an article by Stefan, oh, dear, K-Y-R-I-A-Z-I-S. I would love to know how to say that, but I don't. So anyway, that is the author of this article. Now, okay, we've all watched those wonderful um, Georgian period movies, Jane Austen, you know, and before. And you see all these, you know, very civilized, well-mannered young ladies and these polished gentlemen and they're all bowing and curtsying and being very uh, civilized and polite. Well, okay, now you have to remember this: the Georgian period was the 18th century into the 19th century. 
early 19th century. And the time that the Countess lived, this is how life was. Especially, I mean, this is basically in England, too. Now, America was a little different, but not by much. Okay. Deadly makeup, mouse hair, brows, and lice-ridden wigs, the dirty lives of Georgian women. Poor hygiene. Despite their elegant appearance, Georgian women carried a world of stench. While hands and faces would be washed daily, immersive bathing was considered bad for the health and was only indulged in occasionally. They didn't take baths very often. The heavy gowns of the period would have caused the wearer to sweat sweat profusely with only perfumes such as rose water and orange blossom to mask the smell. The clothes themselves would also be pungent. Due to the huge amount of work involved in laundering, most households would have a maximum of one wash day a month. Linen undergarments were changed as often as possible, but their clean smell would still be unappealing to us. Linen was often bleached in chamber lye. Oh, dear. A kind of soap made from ashes and urine. Uh, they, they had to be, you know, nose blind. I, I just, I mean, we would be so upset by their day-to-day condition. Now, false teeth. As if bodily odor was not bad enough, There was also the whiff of rotting teeth. A sugar-rich diet led to frequent tooth decay in the upper classes. And if you ever do get your hands on a uh, cookbook from the 18th century, um, especially the French, you will see that sugar was like sugar, butter, lard. They were the main ingredients (laughs) to all their stuff. And, yeah, so... A sugar-rich diet led to frequent tooth decay in the upper classes. And they didn't have dentists either. They had barbers, and they would take wrenches and pull out your bad teeth. Cleansing tooth powders had started to emerge, but most of these featured spirit of vitriol, known to us as sulfuric acid, and stripped teeth of their enamel. Often the best remedy for smelling teeth and bad breath was to chew herbs such as parsley. That's why you always get parsley on your plate. Where a tooth was past hope of redemption, it would be pulled with pliers or a tooth key, a claw, that would fix to the teeth so it could be loosened in the jaw. (laughs) To avoid a gummy smile, ladies of fashion saw false teeth made from ivory or porcelain. But where possible, they preferred to have live teeth in their dentures. Poor people were encouraged to sell healthy teeth for this purpose. While such a practice was unethical, it was better than the other method of sourcing human teeth, pillaging them from battlefields and graveyards. Deadly makeup. Georgian women were renowned for their snowy faces and dark eyebrows, but achieving the fashionable skin tone could be extremely dangerous. White face powders were lead-based, and some also featured vinegar and horse manure. Years of coating the entire face, shoulders, and neck with such a mixture could lead to catastrophic consequences. Society beauty Maria Gunning died at the age of just 27, having spent her life addicted to cosmetics. Lead poisoning could cause, cause hair loss and tooth decay, but ingenuously these problems were elegantly adapted into the fashion 
and it became desirable to have a high forehead and pencil-thin eyebrows. If your own eyebrows failed you completely, you could always trap a mouse in the kitchen and use its fur to make a new artificial pair. They wonder why they had plagues. Now, they also were into big hair. You may have thought 1980s perms were huge, but Georgian ladies were the mistresses of big hair. They piled their frizzed and curled locks over pads or wires to create showpieces for the drawing room. Often their own hair was not sufficient and had to be supplemented by horse hair and false pieces. Styles from the 1760s were domed or egg-shaped, elongating into the poof in the 1780s. But Georgiana, the infamous Duchess of Devonshire, had to take things a step further. She introduced the three-foot hair tower, ornamented with stuffed birds, waxed fruit, and model ships. Following her example, women competed with one another to make the tallest headdress. Since these styles were costly and took hours to arrange, they were worn for several weeks. Ladies had to sleep sitting up and travel on the carriage floor to avoid spoiling their creations. With no combing possible, life were inevitable, so a special scratching rod was invented for irritated ladies to poke into their piled-up hair. Bodily fluids. The great mystery of Georgian women relates to their monthly cycle. No one has proved for certain what they did, if anything, for sanitary hygiene. With no knickers to hold in strips of linen or rag, they were left to Mother Nature's mercy. However, we do know a little more about their toilet habits. When ladies at the royal court were caught short, they resorted to porcelain jugs, much like a modern-day gravy boat. They'll never you know, sit at Thanksgiving dinner the same again. This contraption, called a bordeloo, was stuffed up beneath the skirts and clenched between the thighs. Apparently, it's quite normal for a lady to continue her conversation while urinating into the device. Well, you'd never know. I mean, with the skirts that they had, geez. Now, in prenups, upon marriage, a lady and all her worldly goods would become property of her husband. It was therefore essential to guard a well-to-do bride's interest with a legal marriage settlement before the ceremony took place. Henrietta Hobart, later mistress to George II, King George III's father, had reason to be thankful for the settlement drawn up before her marriage to Charles Howard in 1706. It stipulated that two-thirds of her dowry should be invested with the interest at her sole disposal. Should Henrietta die, the funds would pass to her children. This arrangement was to prove life-saving when her husband became an abusive gambling addict and alcoholic. Lower-class women were known to take extreme measures to protect their future husbands from their own debts. Smock weddings were intended to show that the bride brought no clothes or property to the union, thus exempting each spouse from the other's financial liabilities. The woman would be married wearing only her undergarment or smock, or sometimes nothing at all. And then there's marital abuse. No marriage settlement, however generous, could save a woman from a violent husband, and it remained legal for a man to rape or kidnap his wife. While excessive beating was frowned upon, whipping was considered a reasonable measure to discipline a wife. Even so, it would appear many men pushed their rights beyond the limit, for laws were later amended to say that a man could only beat his wife with a stick no thicker than his thumb. Escaping an abusive marriage was well-nigh impossible. Divorces were so expensive that they remained the privilege of the very rich. Even if a lady did have the money to appeal for divorce, she was by no means certain of success. 
She would have to prove both adultery and life-threatening cruelty. And if she won her freedom, it would come with more than just a social cost. Any children from the marriage would remain property of the husband. Now, sex therapy. The duty of an aristocratic wife was to produce a healthy son and heir, but if nature did not take its course, they could seek help. Seek help. One man who promised to cure infertility was Dr. James Graham. His invention, the celestial bed, guaranteed conception and unearthly sexual pleasure. You have to remember that the 18th century was a lot more randy than the, the 19th century. I mean, it, it was... Um, it was more more morals were a lot looser than they became in the 19th century. Okay, let's see. The bed itself was electrified and stood on insulating glass legs. The mattress was stuffed with stallion hair to increase potency. Mirrored floors and music from a glass harmonica heightened the experience while the air swirled with exotic perfumes. Having made love on this bizarre contraption, the couple were encouraged to take ice baths and have a firm massage. The lady would also be advised to douse her genitals with champagne. Oh, what a waste. But infertility was not the only sexual hazard facing the Georgian lady. In an era when prostitution was rife and many aristocratic men had mistresses, the threat of sexually transmitted diseases was very real. In the 1740s, Lady Frances Cunningsby found herself infected by her playboy husband, Syphilis. Even less fortunate wives might found, find the disease had been passed on to their unborn children. The dangers of childbirth. Despite advances in medicine, a shocking number of medieval practices remained in the Georgian birthing chamber. The long period of rest or confinement leading up to the birth was still enforced for healthy women. The rooms would be kept dark and sweltering with the expectant mother wrapped up in fustian waistcoats and petticoats. As soon as she had given birth, the room was made even hotter with the curtains around the bed pinned and even the keyhole in the door stopped to prevent a draft. Those more fortunate might find themselves in a birthing chair. This had a sloped back and a semicircle cut from the seat designed to let gravity aid nature. It was certainly a better option than staining expensive bedding and linen. With only female relatives and an unofficially trained midwife to help, many women and their babies died in childbirth, as it was known, childbed, as it was known. Even when male surgeons became involved in obstetrics toward the end of the century, treatments were woefully inadequate. The only child of George VI, Princess Charlotte, was put on a lowering diet in 1819 and bled frequently during her pregnancy. Although she had the care of England's leading doctor, she died of a postpartum hemorrhage, which is how Victoria became queen. Fostering. Where birth was successful, Georgian ladies would embark on a course of child care that seems unnatural to modern eyes. The rich and middle class were unlikely to suckle their own babies. Instead, a wet nurse would be employed from the local village to breastfeed the baby. This measure was not only taken to ensure that the lady could conceive again as soon as possible. Wealthier women often had difficulty breastfeeding due to their tight courses or stays. It was also believed that a child would grow up stronger and hardier with a country woman's milk. But even when the baby was weaned, it was common practice for it to be handed to foster parents until it was old enough to run about and talk. Jane Austen and her siblings were fostered by a cottager in Dean Village, two miles from their family home. 
Unsurprisingly, many upper-class children retained affectionate relationships with their nurses well into adulthood. Well, wonderful good old days, eh? Oh, I do love my porcelain fixtures in my drugstore. So I, I just found that extremely, well, of course, I just love to know how, you know, people took care of things back in the day before they had all these conveniences that we have today. And that was just, that just. Well, um, I can't really say that because uh, I kind of still live for me. <laughs> you still kind of live that way. Yeah, no, I, I do have, I, I have uh, the conveniences of modern day in my world, but. um <laughs> But, you know, even like, well, we've got to get into your town in a battle. But, you know, you think about it. Even with the modern stuff, it breaks. Like your washing machine. Yeah, yeah. Thank I mean, you. how many washing machines have you gone through? I mean, I don't have one up here. And the thing that really pisses me off, excuse my, my little French there, is that if I wanted to get an old, I had an old-fashioned um, washer up here. I still have it. My neighbor, I borrowed it from my my neighbor. But the the motor blew. I could never replace it. And it's like the one that has the ring, like they, they go through the ring. Right. But it takes up a lot of electricity. Mm-hmm. It's huge. It takes a lot of water. So I could understand what they're talking about, you know, washing once a year. Because my husband keeps saying, well, we need to get this fixed. And I'm like, no. It's too much. And, even, and you had a smart washing machine. Yeah, well, you know, the, the trouble is these days, I mean, my my mom had a Maytag for 25 years. Same washing machine. I grew up with it. And dryer. And only a couple of times did the little Maytag man have to come out and, you know, replace a little part. Nothing major. 25 years. You can't get a, a, a washing machine to last five years anymore. It's because everything that used to be brass and, and metal is now plastic. And a lot of it comes from China. So the quality has gone down. Totally. Well, you know, well, when, I, when I grew up, my mom didn't have a dryer. We couldn't afford it. Hmm. So, and in the winter, you can't hang your clothes out in the winter because they're going to freeze. Right. So she had to make a little area to dry our clothes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and this is modern times. You're still going to come up against this stuff. That's why I feel so bad for the millennials, because they're not going to have a clue. Right. Oh, yeah. Now, I wash, my, I wash my husband's socks by hand, because I only go to town every two weeks. I don't have a washing machine. We hang our clothes outside, you know, to air out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm doing the same thing that they, that's what I don't understand why they were so stinky. You know what I'm saying? No. <laughs> The thing is, is our clothes, I mean, you you have to realize that these little women who barely hit five feet tall wore at least 25 pounds of clothing a day. I mean, that was everything that they put on. You know, it was like carrying, you know, I mean, and especially when you think of the fashions, if you go on the Internet and look up the fashions of the 18th century, they had hoops and they had pads and they had corsets and I mean my 
God. They didn't have underwear. They had no underpants, but they had all this other stuff. And and these dresses would be layer upon layer upon layer. Um and and they, they carried, you know, and then their 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 hoops were either bone or they were metal with with strips of cloth. But that weighed a lot. So I mean these women just to, to wash a dress you know, and, and you think about these servants that they had in these houses, um, you know, they had to wash the whole families plus the servants plus the guests stuff and the beddings. I mean, all this by hand. So it was a chore. <laughs> yeah, but see, the thing that I'm, that I, and, and I understand what you're saying, but... Like I don't, I can't do all my beddings all the time. Like I said, I only go down every two weeks. Mm-hmm. So what I do is every couple of days, if it's sunny out, I, right. I hang them out. Yeah, yeah. Well, they didn't even do that. Uh, that's what I'm saying. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, no. I well, they had this this um, baths and fresh air weren't necessarily healthy. You see, they were still in that mindset where. Um, if you were sick, what they would do is close all the windows, get the fire roaring, whether it was July or, you know, January, start, and they, they used incense, and you had all the candles burning, and and then you had the bed, you know, the the, uh, the hangings around the bed, the bed hangings. I mean, Christ, I would suffocate. Yeah, I know. Because I mean, I have I have to have windows open all year round. I have to have a window open. I you know I just need fresh air. And well, God bless Florence Nightingale. Yeah, the wood stove. You know that oh, that sucks the moisture right out of the air. But um, you figure that they didn't have a vacuum. Things were swept. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, All right. Do you have the ba- the uh, history of Yorktown? Because we're going to get into the battle. We're coming at uh, twenty five after the hour. We have another half an hour. Okay. Yes, I do. I have um, Yorktown history from the historic Yorktown, Virginia website, yorkcounty.gov. Yorktown's proudest claim to national importance is that America won its independence here. Although the intent was declared at Philadelphia's Independence Hall, it was only after five difficult years of effort and loss of thousands of lives that the ephemeral idea of independence came to fruition by victory at Yorktown, October 1970-81. Yorktown's history considerably precedes 1781. The present location of the charming town today was occupied by the Native American population for at least 10,000 years prior to European arrival. It is located at the narrowest crossing point of the York River, and natives likely use this point to travel from the peninsula to the Middle Peninsula. Little, however, is documented about these early inhabitants and travelers and no exhibits presently tell their stories. In 1620, Captain Nicholas Martu was sent by King James I to build forts in Virginia, especially at York, and to complete the great log palisade between College and King Creek. York's fort was initially built just a short distance downriver from the present Yorktown, and a small settlement developed there because of the fort's guarantee of safety. 
This village also became a receiving port and mercantile center for the growing population. This site is now part of the United States Coast Guard Reserve Training Center. Martou's early settlement and bringing of other settlers had qualified him to receive several grants of land, one of which is the present location of Yorktown. Sadly, Martou died or did not live to see the town develop on his personal land honings. He died in 1657, but his grandson sold 50 acres of the land for the establishment of Yorktown in 1691. The town's creation established Yorktown as the principal location for securing tobacco, good wares, and other merchandise. The port, wharves, warehouses, and other appropriate buildings for the conduct of commerce were situated at the riverfront. Surprisingly, the town's original 50 acres did not include the land immediately adjacent to the river, land that today features a park, several blah, blah, blah. That land became valuable as the town developed, and in 1738 was purchased and added to the town. This parcel was overseen by the Yorktown trustees, a board created in 1738, which still administers this land affairs today. The town continued to grow, and by the passage of the Tobacco Inspection Act of 1734, nearly all of Yorktown's 85-town lots had been purchased and development begun. With high-quality Virginia tobacco established as the main money crop and Yorktown named as a tobacco inspection port, the town's growth potential for the future seemed secure. Virginia's planters who lived in Yorktown or had second homes here lavished themselves in their homes with luxuries and expensive items from England. In 1764, an English visitor commented that he perceived a great air of opulence among the inhabitants Every considerable man keeps an equipage, very pretty garden spots. Avenues are prodigiously agreeable. The roads are infinitely superior to most in England, and the planters live in a manner equal to the men of the best fortune. Unfortunately, tobacco exhausted the soil, and modern fertilization practices had not yet evolved. As a, res- as a result, the quality and quantity of tobacco declined dramatically from mid-century on, and Yorktown's heavy dependence on the tobacco-based commerce proved to be its downfall. Yorktown's place in early American history was established by several Yorktown residents who devoted themselves to Virginia's and the new nation's service. Principal among them was certainly Thomas Nelson, signer of the Declaration of Independence. Additionally, David Jameson, a Scots merchant of Yorktown, served in the Virginia Senate and in the Privy Council and as Lieutenant Governor and finally Acting Governor in 1781. Cyrus Griffin, last President of the Continental Congress under the Articles of Confederation, was another prominent Yorktown citizen. Clearly, the ultimate historically significant event for Yorktown is the victory of General George Washington's army over the British Army. So that is how Yorktown developed. Thank you very much for that. You're welcome very much. Well, because it's not really spoken about a lot. You know, Charleston's more high, even though it was really pivotal in the Revolutionary War, you hear more about Charleston, you hear more about Savannah, you hear more about Boston, right? Yeah. Philadelphia, you know, you don't really hear much about Yorktown. Well, it was it was the end. I mean, if you if you any history book that you read about the American Revolution always mentions Yorktown because 
that was the deciding battle. I mean, for Cornwallis to surrender, that was a big thing. He got screwed. Okay, so we're going to do the Battle of Yorktown. Let's see what else you did that. I got to do the Battle of Yorktown. We did the Georgian. I got to make. I got to update my notes so I don't forget. Okay, Georgian. There he is. We didn't do the Battle of Yorktown yet. I'm doing it now. Oh, okay. Okay. Yes, I thought right. that you had. We had done it. I'm sorry. I no. Correctly. No, I wanted to do the history of Yorktown because, like, like you pointed out, there was a lot of prominent people that came from there. Yes. And again, it's not really talked about that much. Yeah. Okay, so this is from ThoughtCo.com. Did you go away? Oh, dear. We lost her, I think. What the heck? Oh, there you are. <laughs> some, some message just came on and told me to press star zero. Oh. That, they, that they, can't, they can't fulfill my request. I, my phone is sitting next to me. My hands are between my legs. <laughs> I know. It's those smartphones, you know. Yeah, but see, that's the scary thing. People don't think that they, we can be invaded by them or that people cannot listen uh, to us or manipulate the damn phone. Oh, I know. They're hackable. So is your car if you have a new one. Yep. That's why these uh, driverless cars, these people are insane. I know. There's no way. I'm, all, I'm all upset I have a damn computer in my, my vehicle. My vehicle's in 1989. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And do you have a piece of tape over your um, camera lens and your laptop? <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, my my husband disabled it. Yeah. He disabled all he disabled all the the cameras on our laptops years ago. Yes. As soon as we get a new one, he knows how to do it, so he disables it. Yes. Okay. So, Battle of Yorktown background. In August 1781, General George Washington learned that Lieutenant General Lord Lord Charles Cornwallis' army was encamped near Yorktown, Virginia. After discussing options with his French ally, Lieutenant General Jean Baptiste, oh my goodness, Ponton de Washington decided to quietly move his army away from New York City with the goal of crushing Cornwallis' isolated force. Departing on August 21st, the Franco-American army began marching south. As any success would be dependent upon the French, French Navy's ability to prevent Cornwallis being resupplied, this movement was supported by the fleet of real Admiral Comte de Grasse. No, Comte de Grasse. Comte de Grasse. <laughs> Battle of Yorktown. Battle of the Chesapeake. Arriving in the Chesapeake, the Grasse's ship assumed a blocking position, blockading position. On September 5th, a British fleet led by Rear Admiral Sir Thomas Graves arrived and engaged the French. In the resulting Battle of the Chesapeake, the Grasse succeeded in defeating the British and leading them away from the bay. Disengaging, the French returned to the Chesapeake and resumed blockading Cornwallis' army. 
Arriving at Williamsburg, Washington met with Degasse aboard his flagship Villa de Paris on September 17th. After securing the Admiral's promise to remain in the bay, Washington focused on concentrating, concentrating his forces. As troops from New York reached Williamsburg, they joined with the forces of the Marquis de Lafayette, who had been shadowing Cornwallis' movement. See, and uh, we have to stress this over and over again. We would not have won this war if it wasn't for the French. Right. Despite what they've been doing to us, despite what they're doing to themselves, it's a fact that cannot be disputed. We had to have the French's help, but we would have never won the war. French changed a lot. Um, well, de Gaulle, number one. When they took on presidents, France became very different. Than it was. Well, I, actually, that's funny you say that because I just was listening again to another episode of War Stories, and he talks about how the uh, our generals they 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 got rid of De Gaulle. They were done with him. Oh God, he was. Yeah. No, he he's whole another story. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, the French were different back then, and um, now I just feel sorry for everybody that lives in France because um, they're, they're going to be destroyed. Yep. They just are. Europe's going down the tube. But the Muslims are going to take it over. Well, they did it to themselves. Yep. Okay. So this is when the French were good. <laughs> um. Let's see. Arriving. Okay. With the with. Okay. Well, Lafayette had been shot on Cornwall. With the army assembled, Washington and can you say his name for me? Rochambeau. Rochambeau began the march to Yorktown on September 28th, arriving outside the town later that day. The two commanders deployed their forces with the Americans on the right and the French on the left. A mixed Franco-American force led by, I'm never going to say this right either. Comte de Comte de I love the way you said that. (laughs) Was dispatched across the York River to oppose the British position on Hester Point. Gloucester. Gloucester. In Yorktown, Cornwallis held out hope that a promised relief force of 5,000 men would arrive from New York. Outnumbered more than two to one, he ordered his men to abandon the outer works around the town and fall back into the main line of fortifications. This was later criticized as it would have taken the Allies several weeks to reduce these positions by regular siege methods. On the night of October 5th or the 6th, the French and Americans began construction of the first siege line. By dawn, a 2,000-yard-long long trench opposed the southeast side of the British works. Two days later, Washington personally fired the first gun. Now, could you explain, because we do have some time, what they were doing? Yeah. What they, was the line of siege? They were... Um surrounding the fortifications and and the trench, 2,000-yard-long trench. Boy, these guys, they were hard workers. Well, Uh, that's what I'm saying. This was not easy to do. Yeah. They they built the trench as protection for them and so they could get nearer the fortifications. And if 
the British came out of the fort, or their, you know, their work, their their works, um, then all these Continental soldiers would just jump up and shoot the hell out of them. So th- this was to keep them within. When you when you lay siege, you you surround the area that they're in, and uh, so they can't get out. And that way, if you know, if a siege lasts a month, you hope to, you know, keep them in so that they don't have any. They run out of ammunition, they run out of food, run out of supplies, and they surrender. And and the the trench trench warfare was where you you set a line where you could pound them and keep pounding them. So they used up their ammunition, but you were far enough away so that when they shot at you, they couldn't reach you, you know, as easily. So they were trying to keep them contained. So for the next three days, French and American guns pounded the British lines around the clock. Feeling his position collapsing, Cornwallis wrote to Lieutenant General Henry Clinton on October 10th calling for aid. The British situation was made worse by a smallpox outbreak within the town. On the night of October 11th, Washington's men began work on a second parallel, just 250 yards from the British lines. Progress on this work was impeded by two British fortifications, redoubts number nine and number 10, which prevented the line from reaching the river. The capture of these positions was assigned to General Count William de Pont and Lafayette. Extensively planning the operation, Washington directed the French to mount a diversionary strike against the Fuller's Redoubt, Fuller's Redoubt at the opposition end of the British work. This would be followed by Dupont and Lafayette's assault 30 minutes later. To help increase the odds of success, Washington selected a moonless night and ordered that the effort be made using bayonets only. No soldier was permitted to load their musket until the assault had begun. Tasking 400 French regulars with the mission of taking redoubt number nine, DuPont gave command of the assault to Lieutenant Colonel Wilhelm von Beckenbrucken. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, Lafayette gave leadership (laughs) of the 400-man force for redoubt number 10 to Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Hamilton. On October 14th, Washington, I don't care if he was a hero, just like uh, McCain. They were both pieces of crap. Not have gotten, on October, huh? You should just not have gotten into politics. On October 14th, Washington directed all the artillery in the area to concentrate their fire on the two redoubts. Around 6.30 p.m., the French commenced the diversionary effort against the Fuselier's Redoubt. Moving forward as planned, Zick and Brooken's men had difficulty clearing the abatis at redoubt number nine. Finally, hacking through it, they reached the parapet and pushed back the Hessian defenders with a volley of musket fire. As the French surged into the redoubt, the defenders surrendered after a brief fight. Approaching redoubt number 10, Hamilton directed a force under Lieutenant Colonel John Warren to circle to the rear of the enemy to cut off the line of retreat to Yorktown. Cutting through the abatis, Hamilton's men climbed through a ditch in front of the redoubt and forced their way over the wall. Encountering heavy resistance, that ultimately overwhelmed and captured the garrison. 
Immediately after the redoubts were captured, American sappers began extending the siege line. Can you finish it? My arm is starting to hurt. Sure. With the enemy growing nearer, Cornwallis again wrote to Clinton for help and described his situation as very critical. And <laughs> say, as the bombardment continued, now from three sides, Cornwallis was pressured into launching an attack against the Allied lines on October 15th. Led by Lieutenant Colonel Robert Abercrombie, the attack succeeded in taking some prisoners and spiking six guns, but was unable to break through. Forced back by French troops, the British withdrew. Though the raid had been moderately successful, the damage inflicted was quickly repaired and the bombardment of Yorktown continued. On October 16th, Cornwallis shifted 1,000 men and his wounded to Gloucester Point with the goal of transferring his army across the river and breaking out to the north. As the boats returned to Yorktown, they were scattered by a storm. Out of ammunition for his guns and unable to shift his army, Cornwallis decided to open negotiations with Washington. At 9 a.m. on October 17th, a single drummer mounted the British works as the lieutenant waved a white flag. At this signal, the French and American guns halted the bombardment, and the British officer was blindfolded and taken into the Allied lines to commence surrender negotiations. Talks commenced at the nearby... Moore House, with Lawrence representing the Americans, the Marquis de Noailles, the Noailles, <laughs> I'm having a hard time with that one too, the French, and Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Dundas and Major Alexander Ross representing Cornwallis. Through the course of the no- negotiations, Cornwallis attempted to obtain the same favorable terms of surrender that Major General John Burgoyne had received at Saratoga. This raise was refused by Washington, who imposed the same harsh conditions that the British had demanded of General, Major General Benjamin Lincoln the year before Charleston. With no other choice, Cornwallis complied, and the final surrender documents were signed on October 19th. At noon, the French and American armies lined up to await the British surrender. Two hours later, the British marched out with flags furled and their bands playing the world turned upside down. Claiming he was ill, Cornwallis sent Brigadier General Charles O'Hara in his stead. Nearing the Allied leadership, O'Hara attempted to surrender to Rochambeau, but was instructed by the Frenchmen to approach the Americans. If Cornwallis was not present, Washington directed O'Hara to surrender to Lincoln, who was now serving as his second in command. With the surrender complete, Cornwallis' army was taken into custody rather than paroled. Shortly thereafter, Cornwallis was exchanged for Henry Lawrence, the former president of the Continental Congress. The fighting at Yorktown cost the Allies 88 killed and 301 wounded. British losses were higher and included 156 killed, 326 wounded. In addition, Cornwallis's remaining 7,018 men were taken prisoner. The victory at Yorktown was the last major engagement of the American Revolution and effectively ended the conflict in the American favor. Ta-da! Ta-da! <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, I got to tell you, though, um, it's amazing to me that these French officers and generals deferred to, to Washington. You know what I'm saying? We mean deferred. Like Washington was in charge of the whole operation instead of them saying, well, you know, we've been in a lot of wars with the British and you really haven't. And, you know, 
it, they just all automatically deferred to him because he was such a dynamic leader. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yep. Well, that was one thing um, um, among uh, soldiers of the time, um, and it's written in, in some of the letters I read from soldiers that were in battles, that they held high respect for the the enemy because they were good soldiers or they were a good general, you know. Um, Even though they were the enemy, they had respect for their abilities. And especially if they were fair, you know. Well, and I'm going to announce to everybody, again, we're really sorry that this has been hit and miss with this show. Um, we do know how important it is, especially now. We did win the election, but um, the battle is just beginning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm telling you right now, mm. it's going to get worse before it gets better. We're just starting a war. There is a war going on in this country. It's not being done with muskets. It's not being done with the cannons. There is violence happening all over this country that you're not hearing about. And we are in a war of words. We are in a war of ideas. and this this is extremely important for you to learn our history because the only way that we can combat this is with knowledge. Now, I there's a project called the Patriots Pub, PatriotsPub.us, but if you go to which is a historical done by three um, self-taught historians talking about the Continental Congress uh, Convention, Continental Convention of 1787, day by day in the founders' own words, and they read the founders' own words. They take turns with whatever founder that they're going to uh, be highlighting, uh, whatever day they're going to be highlighting, I'm sorry. But if you want to find more knowledge, go to uncooperativeradio.com. There's the three uh, radio shows there. The one that I do with my husband, which is political, and it has history in it. The one that Deb and I do right now, the Women of the Revolution, and PatriotsPub.us, you say they're all there. But that's a one-stop, you know, one-shop stop on cooperativeradio.com. But please, please listen to us. We are pleading with you. You have to know your history. Please learn. Help teach your children the proper history, not what they're learning in school. Because we are in very perilous times. And I know everyone says, oh, every generation says that. Oh, no, 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 <laughs> no, I didn't think I'd be living through this. Did you, Deb? No, I, this is very surprising. <laughs> I mean, this is good grief. I, it, especially how I started out and uh, in the late 60s and early 70s and, and where I am now. And watching what has gone on in the interim, um, it's it's an amazing turn of events, which I'm very happy about because, uh, you know, we we don't want to be like Europe. We never were like Europe, and we can go back to not being like Europe or never having to be Europe. The other thing that I wanted to point out is that we are going to try to do this show. If we do not do it on a Monday like we normally do, we will be posting on the website under our uh, 
uh, our description. Right, our description, what is happening, when we, uh, we're going to be on the whole nine yards. I'm going to go over a little bit more with that tonight with uh, Deb. But um, I think the next show is going to, we're going to take on another group of signers of the Declaration of Independence. It's time. Yeah. So we can, we'll be doing that. We've been going uh, colony by colony um, with that endeavor and highlighting those ladies if we can find anything on them. If not, we're doing what we did with Jemima tonight. Uh, she was very important. She was important to this general. We were all English citizens. He really did not want to be in this war. And you can tell, and I just figured that out, this battle, he was just like to the point where, you know, enough is enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because remember, they had been already in France talking and on uh, talking on the treaty at this time. So negotiations already had been started for a British surrender, and this was like the last hurrah, and he was just like, I'm done. Yeah. No more. Especially when Clinton didn't come to help him out. That must have been, I mean, how frustrating for him. He kept writing him. Well, they had had a falling out, too. Yeah. So. Clinton was, uh, he, he was, he had his moments. All right, well, we shall hopefully see you next time. Same bet channel. And as always, I have Deb take us out. And uh, please pray for our president. Please pray for the people that are surrounding him, that are trying to, that, that he stays strong in this onslaught because he is in the, he has, he has overcome so much in his life, but he had probably had no idea that this battle would be this bad. And oh. he did inherit a mess. He's he's surrounded um, by people who are doing everything in their power to bring him down. But right now, uh, we have some extra special Marines in Syria. Um, We have some... Well, we we have troops in a lot of places right now and and things are dicey where they are so if you could you know send a prayer up for keeping them safe and bringing them back to their families and give a thought to their families and uh yeah send a card there there's a you can um find group support organizations um online that uh they they collect cards and um, send to the troops, and uh, I do green beans coffee myself. You can buy a, a, a soldier a cup of coffee for two bucks over at the Green Beans Coffee website, and they get a free cup of coffee, and they give you a little uh, um, little space to write a note to the soldier. Sometimes they write back, sometimes they don't, but just let them know you're thinking of them. Two bucks for a cup of coffee. Uh, makes their day, I'll tell you. Uh, my son-in-law, who went to Green Beans Coffee uh, when he was in Iraq, you know, really appreciated 
you know, that that he, he was being thought of even by people he didn't know. So it, it just gives them a boost for the day. And there's other also support um, organizations where you can get the address of a soldier who doesn't get much mail or you can um, buy a package. To, you know, they, they make up the packages to send, but you, you send in some money. Because these kids are far from home and... Right now, they're in a big transition period with the military uh, transitioning into the new administration. And, um, you know, those who want to support the troops, they really could use it because the last eight years, they didn't get much support from the administration. So one thing Trump is good for, he's he understands the role of the military and hopefully they'll come home. We won't lose another one. And uh, also, you can head out to your local VA hospital and go visit the old guys over in the, they have the, uh, the um, what do they call it? The, well, it's like a rest home kind of situation, you know, where it's veterans who don't have any family and they can't really take care of themselves end up. And, you know, you can hear some really great stories from from the ones who are there, and they love visitors. You can uh, just go in, and, and you can even volunteer. They have volunteer situations, which is also good because that allows you to keep an eye on what the VA is doing because there's a lot of problems with the VA, and I sincerely hope that they can rectify it one way or another. But... They love to to have you come visit and help out, and, you know, and you'll find that they give you a lot more than you ever thought of giving them. So these are just some options if you want to uh, support the ones who are doing the fighting and who have done the fighting and go to your local recruiting officer, offices and drop off a box of cookies or something for them. They like that, too. They, they uh yeah. They don't get talked about too much. They're very busy, and they have a lot of uh, stress. You wouldn't think it, but, boy, recruiters are under a great deal of stress. And and they don't know. I mean, things keep changing in the military, and they don't know from one day to the next what the qualifications are, what the standards are, because these, these bureaucrats decide that they know better. But, uh, yeah, just support your troops. And uh, if you know some military families that are living around you and, you know, one of the one of the parents is um, on active duty, you know, go out over and ask if you can help out because uh, they're suddenly single parents. And, and if they're far from home and they don't have any family around, uh, it can be a hectic time for them, so... These are just some, some suggestions from a very proud Army mom. And uh, so hopefully we'll be back next week on Monday, our usual day. If not, I'll put up a notice and uh, let you know um, from one week to the next. It's not always easy um, with the Internet and sudden blizzards and things. <laughs> and life. Life is very exciting for Susan and me and sometimes. 
So anyways, I hope you enjoyed the show. Do come back and uh, we'll have another interesting figure from the uh, woman figure of the American Revolution. And we shall see you then. Have a good week. Stay safe. And uh, good night. And good night, Loki.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.